Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger has come out against Metrolinks for their slow execution of two-way, all-day go service to Hamilton. Also, we hosted the Chief's Town Hall with Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Transit here in the city of Hamilton is a key issue. And uh, it was a major issue, of course, in the municipal election last fall. And we all know how that turned out. And uh, after uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger was reelected on uh, the basis, essentially, of uh, being pro-LRT, uh, the premier at the time, Doug Ford, said, yeah, you know what? People have spoken. If that's what they want, that's what the mayor wants, then fine. Well, uh, not too long after that, of course, they put a freeze on real estate developments around uh, the the the, the route, and uh, that's been problematic because now we're finding out that a lot of people that were willing to invest land, buy land, develop around there are now saying, eh, I can't wait forever, sorry. And uh, now we hear about the other element of public transit that we have been looking for for quite some time, and that is all-day go service. And uh, back in the day, uh, I can still remember Premier Dalton McGinney promising that, uh, hey, listen, you guys will have all-day go service by 2015 when the Pan Am games are there, so people can use oh, That's great. What a super idea. Well, we didn't. And then they said, well, maybe by 2025, which is 10 years later than Premier McGinney had suggested. Uh, yesterday, in uh, some leaked information, Metrolinx uh, is now un- under the impression that it's going to be at least 2031, at least 2031, before we may see all-day go service. This is kicking it down the road, or kicking it down the track, I guess, is getting to be a very frustrating exercise. And uh, I'm wondering, and I'm sure a lot of other people in this community right now are wondering, just what's going on and what kind of a commitment do we have here from uh, this government towards public transit? And more importantly, if we can get just a little selfish for a couple of seconds, what kind of commitment do they have to Hamilton? John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. John, how are you doing this morning? Just great, Bill. This is a file that just is not going to go away, is it? No, it's not, although um, I'm not going to suggest that I read all 199 pages of the report, but I, I did spend some time with it yesterday, and I, I'm not sure that it says what it's alleged to have said. Um, the, the report uh, that was issued last November appears to be uh, basically a business case for the electrification of GO, which is something that's, as you know, it's been a long-term that's that's the way that they're actually going to increase the frequency uh, to to get us to uh, when they say all day go we 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 have go uh, all day now it's just that it's not as frequent as people want it <laughs> yeah so, it's twice and, all day and I was trying to figure out what two way meant because there's no way a train can only go one way uh, otherwise it would never come back so. Anyway, we, we get into these crazy expressions, but the, the report that's, that's being referred to is, is basically restating the business case for electrifying the system. And uh, so, you know, uh, it, it doesn't really talk at all about what's going to happen between now and 2025 in terms of service increases. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, along with others, uh, uh, sent a note to Metrolinx yesterday and said, you know, does this mean that we're basically going to have no increases in conventional GO train service uh, until 2025? And and the response uh, came back very quickly from the president of GO. He said, no, um, absolutely not. We're adding, our plan is to add additional service every year uh, over the next few years. 
and uh, even even in smaller time increments than that, that you know, a couple of times a year we're going to try to increase uh, the amount of train service into Hamilton. So you know, and and he also he, he signed it off by saying, "Stay tuned for more exciting announcements uh, later this year." So it it looks to me like there's there's really two discussions going on here. There's the discussion that we've had for years about the the go service that we're now used to the 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 regular conventional diesel trains um and then there's this other proposal which is largely what this report was about bill it, it was 199 pages basically if i read it correctly i think they were you know think about it it's it's november of 2018 a new government has been sworn in uh you're the head of go you've got these big plans you want to make sure the new government is okay with that. So it's a big, uh, I, I think, essentially a resell of the uh, electrification process and it lays out what it's going to cost. And when, when we talk about 2030, I, I didn't see 2031, but when we talk about 2030, clearly they're talking about the electrification piece, um, not about you know the, the kind of go service that we'll have in the meantime. If in fact we're going to have ghost service in the meantime, because let's let's lay a cards on the table. This is not the first time they've given us a timeline, and uh, we're still waiting. No, and and I think what would be helpful, uh, uh, there, there's always this. Whenever we ask, uh, you know, what are the impediments? Why why can't we get more frequent service? Uh, you know, so you you go to the West Harbor Station, you look you look west or east. It's hard to tell from there what direction you're looking in. But you see that they've built a third rail uh, coming in from the uh, Bayview Junction. Uh, they they put a new bridge over the Desjardins Canal. Um, surely there was a reason for the for that construction. And and I think what we're missing here from from MetroLink is a clear explanation to the public here in Hamilton of what is it that it what's it going to take to increase frequency. Uh, we know they're negotiating with CNR. That always gets alluded to. Um, and how many years I, has that been going on, John? Well, it's been going on forever, but uh, but I, I I think it is the issue, uh, and so I, I think it's time to get a much clearer explanation from MetroLink about what is it that you're dealing with uh, that is preventing you from getting these trains into Hamilton more frequently. Well, and, and which leads me to my next point, uh, that comes down to political will sometimes, and I'm not so sure that we've seen a lot of that. I mean, let's face it, there's a rather acrimonious debate, I don't want to start digging it up again, but I, we do have to reference it, uh, between all-day go service or LRT, and, and I think that held things up for the longest time, because I'm not so sure that Queen's Park knew exactly what the city wanted. I'm not sure they still don't know exactly what the city wants. So there's, there's at some point got to be some, some, some political push here. And and at the other time, you know, I, the the other side of that equation, of course, is how receptive are they at Queens Park? Well, it, going back to this report, I, I, first of all, I, I don't think it has to be either go or LRT or whatever the LRT money might buy. No, that went, uh, and, and when that was going on, I mean, I think you and I talked about this a number of times and said, look, at the answer is both. It's not one or the other. Yeah, that's right. And and if you look at uh, this report, and it is helpful in some areas because it 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 talks about. I mean, this this electrification, which they're going to do on all their lines, radiating in all different directions from Toronto, it's going to cost sixteen billion dollars, which is a huge amount of money. 
but they're projecting uh, that they will get $12.3 billion in additional passenger revenue, leaving a balance of about $4 billion as the total investment uh, to make this a reality. So it, it looks to me like Go expansion is largely financeable out of increased ridership. So we don't have to use uh, other transit money for, for Go, which I think is a good thing here in Hamilton. Well, I, I get a little nervous when I hear about these projections about uh, increased revenue from passengers because, I mean, you know, HSR has been tr- trying to play that game for the last little while, too. And I, I'm wondering a lot of the time if these are mathematical equations based on, on pure data or if it's, it's just uh, good wishes. Well, I, I think there's a difference, though, between local transit. I mean, we know that local transit systems in, in a lot of cities, uh, Kingston being a, a major exception, we know that conventional transit in cities like Hamilton has been going backwards uh, over the years. But, I mean, all you have to do is get on a GO train, and, and it's, they're always packed. So it, it, I, I think the, the inner city trains... Uh, really do attract passengers uh, in a in a way that local transit may n- may not always uh, attract. Why haven't they made it that much of a priority then? I mean, you know, we're going to talk, and I, I just mentioned this on the program the other day about the gridlock on the Queen Elizabeth Way, especially from here to Niagara. Uh, right. It used to be like on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon. It was like that. It's like that every day now. And and I know for a fact that there are a lot more people would probably hop onto a GO train if they knew that it was an efficient and reliable service. And I know they just started a line from Niagara Falls over to this area, and that's, at, and that's like once a day or twice a day or something like that. But if if they're going to have that discussion about goods movement and people movement, this is this. And since they started this GO system, John, they said, look, at all day GO service has got to be our priority. Well, we're still talking about it. Well, uh, you know. You know, I use Go a, a fair bit, and and I know you know there's sort of the abstract discussion of all day Go service, and then there's the reality. The reality is we have rush hour service, um, and if you go to Aldershaw, which is uh, uh, you know I, I don't think you know there's a lot of talk about Go, but it, 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 I think the experience is different if you're actually using Go. Um, right now, you've got 15 minute service out of Aldershaw. And you've got express buses from the downtown GO station that will take you to that Aldershot station uh, just in time to catch the train. Now, somebody might say, well, geez, i got to do a transfer. Well, you know what, too bad. I mean, if you're using public transit um, and, and you're avoiding a two-hour bumper-to-bumper drive uh, to Toronto, then, then maybe you could grab that GO bus at, at the Hunter Street GO station, takes you right over to Aldershot, and when you come off the train, coming back, the bus is sitting there with the door open. And it only waits about two minutes, and bingo, you're off to, to Hamilton. It's not a bad system. Uh, if, you're, if you're not going to Toronto in rush hour, those half-hour go buses are by far the best way to get to Toronto. They'll get you down there in about 55 minutes, and it's just fabulous. So, you know, we have the trains in the rush hour. We have the buses when we don't have the rush hour. Uh, it's not a bad system. Well, and, and, but it's it's not what was promised. I get that. And I've, I've used it from time to time when I had to go to Toronto on a pretty regular basis, too. Uh, and, and part of the problem here, if, if we're going to you know, be frank about this, is, is the design. I mean, right from the get-go. I mean, from a historical standpoint, it's wonderful. And the, the, they, they decided that the Hunter Station was going to be uh, the go outlet. There was going to be the hub for here in Hamilton. 
But I think we had the only GO station in Ontario without any parking. And and that's obviously going to be prohibitive because a lot of people that live up in the South Mountain and other places where they have to get from point A to point B are saying, why should I bother? It just seems ludicrous that that's the way it was designed. And so we've been playing catch-up, I think, right from the beginning. Yeah, the good news, uh, that was one other little nugget that came out of this report. They clearly show that the future plan is that the West Harbor Station, and more importantly, the Centennial Station, uh, are going to be the, the ones that get the frequent service, and that the uh, Hunter Street is only going to have the rush hour service. So at least we're getting back to using um, you know, the right-of-way that eventually goes to Niagara Falls instead of this dead end on, on Hunter Street. So uh, it was good to see that that's part of the future plan. Um, absolutely. Two quick things I wanted to get your, your read on. Uh, one, uh, when, if ever, is the Premier going to make good on this promise to come into the city and talk to the mayor about the, some of the key issues? I mean, uh, that was promised a, a number of months ago, nine months ago, obviously, after the election, uh, when we had this big kerfuffle about LRT and who was going to pay for any cost overruns. Uh, we had Donna Skelly on the show, and Donna said, well, the first step is to have the transportation minister come in. Well, that was over a month ago. Still nothing about that. I, I, you know, it's, we're going to start taking it personally. I mean, it seems as if they have, don't have any great interest in coming here and sitting down and talking. Well, I do understand. Uh, I just heard this, uh, I think, yesterday that the transportation minister is coming. Uh, there has been a meeting scheduled that will involve the mayor. And I think it's uh, it's either next week or it's in the next 10 days or so. So at least All right, that, well, you can check that box then. Th- that's happening. Um, as for the premier, I you know I can't speak to that. I don't know how that works. But well, he's got a lot I, of free time now because he doesn't go to question period anymore. I heard you say that. <laughs> that was kind of nasty, Bill. But <laughs> yeah, well, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing too, in the, in the minute or half or so that we have left, uh, we heard rumblings a few months ago about the, the tentative future of Metrolinx. That uh, this government was reassessing uh, Metrolinx's place in in this whole transportation master plan. Uh, which could really throw a monkey wrench into all the works if they decided to pull a, a change here. And, and let's face it, uh, they've had a propensity since they've taken office right now to say, oh, did the liberals do that? Okay, well, we're canceling that. Uh, so are, are these guys on, on, on solid ground, meaning, meaning Metrolinx? Hard to say. I, I, I think, again, going back to this, uh, this report, um, I think in part it was a way of Metrolinx reintroducing itself to the new boss um, you know, there's a new regime in town, and we want to make sure that uh, the stuff we're working on is is uh, still going to be in in harmony with the with the new government. So, I I suspect that you're going to see Metrolinx um, maybe come back a little more directly under control of uh, the Ministry of Transport, which wouldn't uh, be a bad thing. Well, uh, you know, I. Uh, it's hard to say. I don't know why exactly it was pulled out in the first place, other than I think there was um, a feeling that the transport ministry was too focused on highways uh, back in, you know, 12, 15 years ago when McGinty uh, came in. Um, whatever the case, uh, I mean, we're still going to have transit. Uh, the, the one thing for sure is that uh, through all this political upheaval, uh, GO has actually been uh, a really well-run service. And I'm, you know, they have somehow managed to chug along and and expand service and 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 do a lot of things with all this political turmoil around them. So I have a lot of confidence in in Go. I I really think Go is 
is the jewel as far as Metrolinx is concerned. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. As always, John, thanks for this today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is time for the Chiefs Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio for the entire hour. I got a lot to talk about with the Chief. How are you doing this morning? Uh, very well. Thanks for having us on. Good to have you again. Uh, lots going on uh, in town here. Uh, some concerns about uh, public safety, and I know a task force that you've talked about. Uh, this is a fraud prevention month. I want to talk about that because there's uh, some ongoing concerns about that. But that's. Uh, Let's get right to the hot button issue, and that, of course, is uh, is the Red Hill Expressway, and uh, some of the concerns that have been raised over the last little while. There's a, a political end of things to this, which I, I don't want to drag you into, although you get dragged into that every time you go before council. It happens occasionally, but there is an enforcement issue here that yeah. uh, that uh, we want to talk about, and and uh, there have been some concerns about that, and some accusations that look at a lot of the problems that are going on there that cause an awful lot of these collisions are. Uh, because of excess of speed and, and and distracted driving, which is rampant just about every place else too. So why wouldn't it be there? I suppose. So you've decided to do something about this. The story we saw late last week, Chief, is that there's going to be uh, more enforcement than usual there. Talk to us about the plan and, and what you're going to be doing going forward. Yeah, so this has been a graded response to this, and there is an addition now, which is in the works. We're not quite there yet. Uh, but if you look back uh, kind of on the historic part, when this started to become an issue, uh, we have enforcement out of both Division Two and Division Three on an ongoing basis. And, of course, relative to your comments, uh, the speeding, the distracted driving is everywhere. But obviously with the link and Red Hill in particular uh, and the speeds involved, then it becomes even more pronounced. So we've done that through the course of time. About two and a half years ago, what we did is uh, there are grants available through the provincial government uh, called Police Effectiveness Modernization Grants. And one of the things we did is, uh, is provide funding through our support services section, which is not the frontline response, but they do a whole range of other duties. And just to clarify, because I heard some of the articles or, and, and the news reports, we're not not doing the things they did. So they do breath work. They do the drug recognition expert work. Uh, they do a lot of impaired driving stuff. But they're also in their time when they're not doing those, they're going to do enforcement. And we've dedicated that enforcement to both the link and the Red Hill. And the funding source was actually the province. So I just want to recognize that part. We also... Uh, fund some of the Coast and MCERT program, Mobile Crisis Rapid Response Team, through some of those funds as well. We think that's a, uh, a terrific area to do frontline delivery of service through other branches. So the supplement being discussed right now is potentially additional funds from the city to do dedicated enforcement on an ongoing basis. And it'll be, that uh, Deputy Bergen has talked about, he's in charge of it, uh, looking at doing it until they start doing the construction on the Red Hill where they're going to change uh, the asphalt. We do know from the reports through the course of time that there are many approaches, education, signs, lighting, uh, all kinds of approaches, but enforcement quite often is one of the ways you have to go. I've talked about it in this show before. I, I'm in support of photo radar. Um, I do know that the city looked at that, but because it is not a community safety zone, uh, as in the legislation, and they're thinking about areas where we have school zones and high pedestrian rates, um, it doesn't really apply until we get a change at the provincial level around photo radar. So short version is we will do supplemental enforcement dedicated uh, probably through funds dedicated from the city. Do you know what's interesting about that? We were talking about this uh, in the newsroom a couple of days ago because Council Marul is a big advocate for this, and I know he's put a letter forward to the province asking them to, you know, let them put it this on, on that particular roadway too. Uh, and I remember the pushback uh, back in the uh, 1990s. Uh, it was the Bob Bray government provincially that instituted mm -hmm. photo radar. Yep. 
And uh, you, we, you heard all the cat calls. It's like tash grab. Oh, it's causing more accidents because people slam on the brakes when they see the car by the side. All this sort of stuff. And and it, the fact of the matter is, is if you're not speeding, you don't get caught. You don't get a ticket anyway. But and 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 of course, Mike Harris campaigned in 1995 mm-hmm. and said, That's "I'll right. dump you have me. I'll dump photo radar." And he did. That's right. I'm getting a sense now from what I'm hearing from our listeners and and just general uh, consensus here in the community. Uh, there are a lot more people now that would like to see photo radar. Uh, the, probably even I, I would hesitate to say, but maybe even a majority of people that are saying, "Look at it, it's a public safety tool." I, I we're used to it now with the the red light cameras. Yeah, and I agree. And I know uh, you know I drove down to a conference in New Brunswick, and they have photo radar on their highways. Well, people drive the speed limit. Uh, the whole intent is to get compliance with the law. If the photo radar does it, and to your point, if you're not breaking the law, it doesn't cost you anything. If you want to speed and feel you're entitled to speed, then you're going to pay a price, and ultimately you may lose your license or your privileges. So that's why I'm not adverse to it. You know, I've been in traffic. I've issued hundreds and hundreds of tickets. Um, you know, you have to have some method for people who say, well, you know, law is really just a guideline. And I mean, you know, our latest campaign is if you're speeding, it's not a little bit of speeding, speeding is speeding. Uh, relative to the safety issues, and this is where it's really hitting home, and you talk about either distracted driving or speeding, the implications are people die. And it's not, you know, you're not trying to over-dramatize it, but certainly on a highway like that, and I can only imagine, and I've been in some occasions where people lose control in front of you, do with, you know, a 360, and uh, it's very scary because, you know, when I don't drive in the Daytona, two, I'm not trained to drive to the collision like they are, <laughs> even though that's what they sell, tell you to do. It's very scary because you're thinking, one, I can't just hammer the brakes if I'm doing, you know, 80 or 100K on the 400 series highways. Um, it takes time to get things under control. And it's all because of somebody else's driving behavior. There's an obsession with speed, though. And, and I'm not trying to say, you know, hey, you guys are smart up, but they should. Uh, and I don't know if it's the Fast and Furious or it's the car commercials that all seem to be driving on a coast highway at excessive speed. Uh, but they always say, don't try this at home. Well, do, they do try it at home. <laughs> exactly. And and the fact is, is, is as you said, uh, you know, this is not, you're not Cale Yarbrough. I mean, you're not trained That's to right. do this, but you think you are. You just think, you know, putting the foot on the accelerator means, and I can handle this because I saw it in the movie and, and he did it, so I can do it. So let's just take that analogy momentarily. So if you look inside the cabin, uh, I'll call it of the vehicle for whether it's Daytona 500, one, there's really nothing else inside the car. Two, they've got a five-point harness. Three, they've got uh, a neck brace with a helmet that only allows you to move your head about 10 degrees. Um, So obviously, they take that seriously. Now they're going, you know, 200 miles an hour. But the point is, it's dangerous. So when you're driving like that, it's dangerous. And now you've got a three-point harness. And, you know, I've been to those collision scenes. You know, it'll only hold you so much. And then you're going mobile, apparently, and it's not good. You know, there's a, I remember when my son was taking driving lessons, and I said, look, I said, I'm not trying to scare you because I'm glad you're going to do this. You can get from point A to point B, and I won't have to drive you all the time. But I said, the other element is, I said, without trying to sound paranoid, always assume that the other car is, is potentially going to make a mistake. And the problem with people who speed, is, is, as opposed to on the Daytona track, is everybody else on that Daytona track is trained. And they know what they're doing, and and they can anticipate because they they can figure. Okay, I this guy's trained too. Uh, you may think you're a great driver, and maybe you are, but the guy who's ahead of you isn't, and is going to come out and make a lane change or do something else, or may try to make a left turn, and then you're screwed. That's basically what it comes down to because yep. you're not going to be prepared for that. And the other big thing in a racetrack, they're all going the same direction. Yeah. When you're dealing with uh, traffic, and, and Red Hill is an unseparated highway, 
the combined speed, if you're doing the speed limit, is 160K for a collision, right? If people are doing 80K and lose control and don't reduce speed. So when you're going speeding, if you're doing 120, let's say the other guy's doing 120, that is a collision at 240 kilometers an hour. Let me ask you about that particular section of roadway. And we're talking, I guess, from Green Hill down to, I guess, Barton Street, maybe even a little bit beyond Barton Street, if you're heading northward anyway. Uh, or the other way, because it's, it's the same twisting and turning. Uh, your officers write reports every time there's a, a collision there and they have to go on scene and there's a lot of paperwork. And you, know, you guys know that, of course. Uh Anecdotally, and, and I'm not going to, again, try to drive you into the politics of this, are, are there concerns about the design of the road, about the number of twists and turns on that road? Um, you know what? A lot of them are actually, for, from my perspective, a lot of those are straightaway sections. Uh, when you think about it, the curves are generally gradual. Um, up at the top where the Mud Street ramp is, that's a little curb, but of course they designed that uh, before the link was built. Um, to accommodate and then kind of had to adjust the engineering afterwards. Um, I don't think that, and, and I've read lots of articles in the paper on this too, kind of the general consensus from the public is you have thousands of vehicles that can drive that without problems if they, in fact, observe the speed limit and drive reasonably without being distracted. So from an engineering perspective, I think it's not singularly that. It really is the person or the driver behind the wheel that often precipitates the accident, from my opinion. Uh, because I've, I've talked to some officers that do, well, first of all, speed limit and, and, yeah. and the design of the road. And I, I'm glad they lowered the speed limit. I, I just found it rather uh, odd that uh, that I can be driving up to, to Collingwood and Blue sometime when we go up there. And I'm taking Airport Road. And this, the maximum speed there is 80. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a highway yeah. for all sense of purposes. Yeah. Yet this, it's, it was 90. And I thought, no, because when it's 90, people do 1, 110, et cetera. And, and I think it was an invitation. My only concern about the design as far as the Red Hill is concerned is a couple of the entrance ramps, and I think it's Kingston and Queenston Road, particular King Street and Queenston Road. Uh, you're entering onto a curve, and yeah. you cannot see the the traffic that's coming up there because the, your rearview mirror does not accommodate that. Right, and, and to that engineering application, yeah, and you know, I'll leave those determinations up to the engineers and what's tolerated or not. I can think of myself when you travel up the Kenilworth Access, particularly when you come off the Sherman Cut to go to the Kenilworth and you're doing that kind of left behind your head yeah. and the angle is so severe, you know, other than cracking your neck um, and even with your mirror, it's very difficult to see. So, you know, through the years, I think they've changed those engineering pieces. Uh, the distance usually for ramps is much longer to get you up to speed. Um, so, uh, you know, it is complex, but again, um, what happens when people are doing the 120 and I'm entering from the ramp and let's say they're in the curb lane. That makes my, you know, approach to the uh, entering traffic that much more difficult because they're going so fast. Uh, I, I, one quickie about this, too, and then we've got to move on because we've got a lot of other stuff we want to talk to. There was some concern at the time when uh, when we were just talking about this with city councillors uh, about staffing uh, this initiative. And uh, the, there was some talk about perhaps uh, offering money incentive, financial incentives to off-duty officers. Where are you on that? Yeah, and that's part of the negotiation going on right now. They're looking at potential special duties. What you get from that is you get a dedicated person doing strictly enforcement for the total period. If we try and, and work it in with a regular calls for service, you can just set up, get in a good spot, start enforcement, and they get called off for a higher priority call. When it's special duty, it's beyond the scope of that, so it's dedicated. So that that's the reason I think why um, you know City Hall is contemplating for short term. This isn't going to be forever, and it's for a specific purpose. And it, w- will there be an uptake on that? 
Oh, we're certainly interested, and we just got to get. It's not just a matter of getting people; it's getting cruisers that are properly equipped with the speed measuring devices, whether it's laser or whether it's radar. Um, part of it is around training because um, you know our um, officers, other than maybe on Highway Six. We're not doing stops like the OPP on a 100K highway, right? And if you've ever done one uh, with the wind speeds and everything else and your hat flies off, and I think, God bless those guys, men and women who are out there doing that work, because uh, it's quite a different scenario than start stopping at a residential street. So we have concerns about the length or the width, I'm sorry, of the uh, pull-off lanes that we can do so safely, both for the uh, person and ourselves. The officer can approach safely. And even, you know, when in my time in traffic, I tried not to activate all my roof lights because what tends to happen is people look directly at it and p- you drive where you look. So I would go with wigwags or something else that's not quite so dramatic. Um, it depends on the circumstance or the hazard, but you've got to be also conscious of how do you keep yourself and the person safe while you do that traffic stop. You mentioned training. Um, let's face it, if, if this is going to be offered to off-duty officers, is not every officer is trained in, in traffic control, are they? Uh, they are, and on a daily basis, they do that work. But again, when but that's on a residential street more often. Than uh, more often, but I mean, it depends, right? I, I've done uh, traffic stops on Highway Six as well when I was in, in that unit. Uh, but we just want to make sure, relative to the environment, that we're doing all the things we can to make sure that we everybody stays safe. So we're going to be providing some of that. Uh, now, this has already started. This program's already started. No, uh, they're uh, De- Deputy Bergen still negotiating with the city. We're getting the things in place. We'd like to start sooner than later. Uh, I suspect they'll be up and running within the next week or two. And this is only while these uh, adjustments are made to the road surface itself? Uh, prior to, uh, we're going to do the enforcement, and then when they start the actual road construction, I think what you'll find is it's going to be reduced down to, I, I'm not quite sure the pattern. They may just shut it down entirely to do the work. I'm not sure where the traffic is going to be diverted. Uh, I haven't got, that hasn't been shared with me yet. But even if they were to shut one lane, you can anticipate what the congestion would be. And, and this is not going to have, as somebody asked me the other day when we were discussing this with uh, some of the people on city council, this is not going to have a negative impact on staffing on other parts, other sections, for instance, correct. the link. That's correct, yeah. So it's going to carry on. Yeah, we'll still do our enforcement through the divisions. We'll do our enforcement through our support services. And that's, this would be in addition to it and relative to uh, special duties doing that, if that's in fact where we go. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Chief's Town Hall, Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is here. One of the other elements, Chief, that uh, I, I know that we have had many discussions about, and uh, uh, we hear concerns about this all the time, and that, of course, is, uh, is gun violence. Uh, something that uh, in the past we didn't hear much about. You know, well, we don't have that problem here in Hamilton. We don't, that, we don't do that. That's, that's someplace else that that goes on. We've got that problem now. As a matter of fact, and, and just violence in general, there was another stabbing incident. Now, I, I know you can't talk about an ongoing investigation, mm-hmm. but the, the, the propensity for violence here, whether it's uh, guns, uh, knives, whatever the case might be, uh, is getting a little scary. And initially, people would say, well, it, it's a, it was a targeted situation. Uh, the public doesn't really need to be a concern. But when it's happening with this frequency, the public does need to be concerned. And definitely. We've said that all the way along because, you know, you have misplaced round. Uh, you can have uh, a member of the public who's not involved at all harmed as a result. And, and I think you're seeing a cultural shift really across Canada 
uh, that is becoming more violent. And as you know, we've struck up a, a Make Safe Guns and Drugs Task Force in Hamilton. Uh, we did see it go up two years ago in terms of the shootings, went down last year. And certainly with the pattern this year, it appears to be replicating uh, what has happened two years ago. Um, in terms of kind of uh, common threads in this, uh, whether it's uh, people involved or otherwise, and we've talked about the three major themes, right? Gun, money, drugs, and those seem to emerge again. Uh, whether it's uh, people, and particularly with like, I'll call it a warning shot, although, you know, when you have a, a round travel through a garage with the drywall into somebody's bedroom, uh, definitely more than a warning. Uh, and always concerning. So there's just a whole variety of things that have been going on. Um, I mean, even in the short time, this task force, uh, which was created on February 17th, so we're not even looking at a month yet, <clears throat> uh, we've had uh, 224 criminal charges laid thus far. Firearms seized include nine firearms, three stun guns, ammunition, body armor, imitation handguns, uh, the illicit drugs involved, and this is disturbing, uh, fentanyl, blue meth, purple heroin, cocaine, hydromorph, marijuana, and MDMA. And then, of course, we've seized uh, cash as well, so gun, money, drugs. Um, that's pretty disturbing. Um, and we have pulled in internal resources to do that, being our guns and gangs unit, our high enforcement action teams, and supported both by divisional patrol and our intelligence branch. And then, of course, it also fans out to other cities. As you know, and, and not a broad statement, but we've had uh, people involved who aren't living in our city. You know, they come from out of town, get involved in exchange. Uh, guns are either drawn or fired. And we have an attempt murder charge going on right now as well as a result of that. So um, it is a larger phenomenon. I know in talking to the chiefs across the province, and I'd said it last year when Toronto was facing its issues, you know, I don't want to uh, jinx anything. And it's just a matter of time. I'm not happy about that. Uh, but I'm certainly aware of the fact that it, it is spreading out into the communities. The uh, the drug element is interesting. I've talked to some of the uh, officers over the years that have been involved in this, and, and I guess if there's one message, is anybody that wants to start getting involved in that because they think it's it's easy money, it's dirty business. He says it's yep. it's not as if okay, uh, you've got the drugs, I'll bring the money, we'll shake hands, we'll exchange, and everything will go away. He says a lot of the time, uh, the guy that's got the drugs says, I want the money too, uh, yep. and and you know, and gunplay ensues, and you know, right. people die as a result of this sort of stuff. Uh, it's 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 a messy business, and it's got to be very difficult for your officers to do these investigations because a lot of the time people don't want to talk. And that's a key piece. Because they may well be doing something illegal themselves. Exactly. And, you know, we stress the fact that if you see something, say something. And, and the mechanism can be crime stoppers because if you're involved in it in some capacity, um, you know, you don't want to hazard your own uh, safety. So, you know, we'll act on the information and we'll corroborate it. Uh, but we certainly appreciate when those things come forward. Our most recent drug seizure came out of a, uh, one of our divisional youth officers uh, dealing with some kids who were 14, 15. You say, well, geez, I shouldn't have. Well, the fact is it did. And the fact is we went and then executed warrants and seized a whole range of firearms out of that investigation. So we're certainly not uh, limiting ourselves in terms of the sources of information, anything from a youth to crime stoppers, to intelligence, to all kinds of uh, areas where it comes in. And we're appreciative when we get the tips, when we get the information, when people cooperate. Because, and to your point, you know, all you got to do is watch modern culture here. I'll call it the drug exchange and just how tense that situation is because everybody assumes everybody's got guns. Uh, yeah, is he going to take my money and my drugs? So to your point about a dirty business, there's no rules of engagement. And yeah, there's retribution, but that's where we start to see the results in society is they're, they're running by and outside of the law 
and invoking their own law. Well, they don't really care about anybody else who gets harmed uh, in between who has nothing to do with it. So that's where it's offensive uh, on a whole range of, uh, you know, levels. And, you know, these criminals aren't really caring other than about the profits they're going to make or the drugs they might get. But even if they are successful in, for instance, doing that exchange, to follow through on that example, uh, then it's well known, okay, that, that individual usually has large sums of money with them. You become a target. Exactly. And that, that, that's your point. And it's cash and you're not reporting it. And, um, you know, when, when it comes to... Nobody, nobody's ever come into one of the police stations and said, I'm a drug dealer and I just got robbed. I'm, you know, I'm out $10,000. Believe it or not. <laughs> believe it or <laughs> not. <you> it <laughs> has happened occasionally, <laughs> but is not certainly the rule. And then you say, well, where did the money come from? Well, oh, yeah. Now things taper off and stories change and all the rest of the stuff. But yeah, believe it or not, we actually have had that. And particularly on sex trade crimes where... You know, uh, I was just looking at, you know, uh, meeting up and then they took my money and robbed me and all these other things. So, you know, from our perspective, uh, we're happy to take the information and investigate it and particularly know who the people are. And, uh, you know, you know that dealers also rely on us to do what's expected of us. So when we get the information, what you can have is dealers ratting out other dealers through other sources. You know, I'm not into an ethical dilemma there because if it's, uh, if it's criminal in the first place, then we'll act on the information and corroborate it. I know you work in collaboration with other police services, OPPA, RCMP in some cases, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the, the import of guns and, and, and the usage, obviously, and, and the narcotics themselves. But... Do you, what about resources? I mean, I know there are shared resources in this too, but I guess the answer is you could always use more. But uh, to attack this problem, which seems to be growing, and it's not just a Hamilton problem, of course. It's, it's, it's a, a problem, a societal problem that's happening through North America right now. Uh, do you get the, the support financially and otherwise from, from levels of government to be able to carry out and, and do the work that needs to be done? Yeah, and that's one of the areas when they're looking at efficiencies in policing. And, uh, of course, some of these investigations, particularly at the high levels, can take six, seven years in some cases. So, you know, political decisions that say, well, you know, it takes a long time. But when we're looking at traditional organized crime and other things where they insulate themselves and the level of complexities, both on wiretaps, on investigations, use of undercover all that stuff, it is costly and it is time consuming. So when you're looking at making a quick cut, if uh, you know, you're overseeing some police operation, it seems to be one of the things that goes first. From my perspective as a, as a police chief, I've always been involved and support the cross uh, work between agencies because uh, even if I've got one or two players in a joint task force, I know that I profit from that, from intelligence flow, who's doing what, an awareness beyond just the Hamilton borders. And, you know, without even task force, we work in cooperation with Niagara, Brantford, uh, Waterloo, York, Peel, Toronto in some cases, uh, because often the players with the 400 series highways, uh, they travel from one community to the other. So if your question to me is, could we use more resources at joint task force level? Definitely. Um, that requires contributions at the federal level from the RCMP at the provincial level. And uh, congratulations to Tom Carrick as the new commissioner coming in. And uh, we have done quite a bit of work with Tom out of York region. Uh, I know he gets that part, and that's one of the things I believe he'll be advocating for. So in short, yeah, we'd like to see more joint service operations. Well, I know you've worked with uh, with York region on a couple of uh, homicide investigations. Yep. Yeah, most recently SCOPA, that's correct. And actually Tom was down uh, as a deputy for that news conference when we announced the arrest. Listen, uh, we've got some time left. I want to talk about, uh, well, we should, under the banner here, uh, this is Fraud Prevention Month. Yep. Uh, you've mentioned this before. This is a, a growing problem, uh, and it's it's 
getting to be a rampant problem right now, and that, of course, uh, in the area of fraud. And and as bad as the numbers might be, and you've thrown some statistics at us in the past, Chief, uh, I guess one of the tragedies here is we, as you've told us, most of the time these things go unreported for a variety of reasons. So as as bad as those numbers might be, the problem is actually much bigger. Yeah, definitely. And there's kind of the embarrassment factor. We understand that with victims, you know, oh, geez, how could I have done that? Uh, you know, whether it's a romance scam or a get-rich-quick scam or, you know, they these people, the scamsters, you know, kind of study human behavior and uh, exploit it. And particularly the vulnerable people, the elderly, uh, new Canadians, and particularly for the elderly. Like, well, geez, I've been around for 70 years. You think I'd know better. But, you know, whether they're desperate because of other circumstances or just think, you know, this is my one opportunity, uh, you're going to have fraudsters to take advantage of that. The other thing with frauds in particular, and we're seeing it with whether it's um, telephone scams or romance scams or the CRA, a lot of this stuff is being perpetrated offshores. And so, you know, we've talked about it before. If I have a 5% success rate from these scams and I'm making the money I am um, and I'm paying somebody as a telephone uh, person in another country a very low wage, then, uh, you know, they'll continue to do that. And we know, I watched some W5 uh, shows on the enforcement in India and just shutting down some of these things. You're talking about thousands of people making these calls and the scam and even the scamsters when they're approached. Well, yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but you know what? Tough and they hang up. Um, you know, they're not certainly looking at the moral um, uh, difficulties in doing this kind of thing, particularly with vulnerable populations and particularly for our, our new immigrants. Um, not knowing what they can do. So we've tried that education piece to get it out there. And this is one of the venues as well to do that. And, uh, you know, the short version is, and I just heard our Detective Sergeant Fraud talking about, it's too good to be true. It probably is. So, you but know, you look at that. But they're so realistic. I mean, oh, we've, definitely. we've graduated from the uh, the Crown Prince of Nairobi that wants to shell $5 million o- over to North America. And by the way, I want you to do it for me. Uh, although the reason that kept coming up is I guess some people fell for that one too. It's still going. But they, uh, see, but these, these these are much more refined. You mentioned the one about CRA. I think yes. I think just about all of us got that phone call at one time yeah. or another, and it sounds authentic. I'm right. I'm from the Canada Revenue Agency. You get a hold of us right now, or you could be charged. You could go to jail for yeah. twenty years. Uh, not realizing most people, I guess, that this Canada Revenue Agency doesn't do that. Uh, you'd get informed by mail from That's CRA. You don't get a phone call, especially a threatening phone call from them. But it's intimidating, and it catches you off guard. And, and so, uh, apparently a lot of people responded to that. Yeah, so they either work out fear or embarrassment or, you know, greed, I'll say. Um, so they're operating on those fundamental human principles and exploit them. And, and you're quite right. They're very good at it. But, you know, if you're kind of that, take a step back, think about it. Okay, does this make sense? And then is there a way I can confirm if this is true or not? Just that pause, you know, whether you phone CRA or whether you phone a bank that's saying, you know, I need your account information with your PIN number. And we all know because they tell you when you get it, don't share this PIN number, don't write it down, don't do this. And then, you know, people, well, it sounds legitimate. It looks like the RBC and I'll just put through or whatever particular well, that's you know, a, that's bank they're one, spoofing. Yeah. Hi, I'm calling from whatever bank yeah. it is. Uh, we just, uh, we have a problem with a discrepancy with the account. Could you yeah. give me your account number so we can check this? Yeah, your card's compromised or it's about to be, your card's compromised and give me the pin. Yeah, well, then it's going to be, you know, compromised. And you figured, again, uh, yeah, sure, I deal with the bank, I guess, but no, banks don't do that. No, and you probably got it from a local branch, so give the branch a call. And then the manager says, no, 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 it's a scam. So just the short time to corroborate, particularly for elderly people or people at home, take the time, check it out, um, see if if it's legitimate or not. 
But to your point about maybe being embarrassed and saying, well, look, I'm not even going to try to report this right now because I, I look like an idiot by doing this. Uh, it would be advantageous if they did because that's the only way you're going to catch these guys. Definitely. We found that in terms of patterns. And we had the most recent case where, you know, when I, I saw Kelly Botello covered on CH News, went down to the courthouse, got his record with 53 convictions for fraud-related offenses. And was, uh, you know, he was selling tickets. Uh, he'd buy them, uh, adjust uh, the seating arrangements, and the people show up and think they're getting general admission. Meanwhile, they're up in the nosebleed sections, and it paid the premium. Or, you know, renting uh, a cottage property. You can only imagine how awful that is. Got all your stuff packed up. You're looking forward to it. You arrive, and, you know, it's like a scene out of a bad movie where it's a swamp property or there's just nothing there. So, uh, you know, it's it's that knowing your sources, checking on its legitimacy, uh, maybe, you know, check the phone numbers, check some other people. Um, it's just doing your due diligence and, and back to if it's too good to be true, probably is. You've got uh, a lot of resources over the last number of years invested in in computer technology, yes. IT technology, obviously, because uh, a lot of the, the bank fraud, a lot of the internet uh, fraud that you're talking about right now is, is being perpetrated through internet, uh, you know, whether it's bank records, whatever the case might be. Uh, and, and again, it's the old idea to double check. I, 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 that adage, you know, if it's too good to be true, it, it's not true. I mean, that's all there is to it. Because uh, it, it just sounds too easy for an awful lot of these guys. And they only, you're right, they only have to get maybe one out of ten phone calls to make it worthwhile for yeah, them. Yeah, they're kind of playing a percentage game, right? So they're willing to, you know, have somebody tell them, no, no, you're not legitimate. Uh, nine of the ten calls, and then the tenth call, they hit the jackpot, and some poor woman with her life savings. And, you know, at least the courts, and I know this when I worked in court branch, the sentences for fraud-related offenses in some cases were higher than personal injury offenses, um, which is kind of surprising. Uh, but, you know, the courts do take it seriously, uh, other than, you know, the latest, which we'll see what happens with this particular person with 53 convictions. But, you know, that on, in and of itself is offensive. Now, the fraud squad, I, I know it's got to be frustrating when they're being in reactive mode like this, like, okay, I have to investigate this guy. I wish he hadn't done this. But I also know that your department is proactive on this. I mean, they go talk to community yes. groups. They talk to business yeah. uh, business associations yep. uh, about, uh, about money fraud, about any number of things like this. So at least you're putting people on alert that look at, be careful and look yeah. out for something like this. Yeah, because when you're pre-warned with that, this is what it could appear like. And then that presents to you and you go, I heard exactly that. You know, whether it's a Prince, Ro- you know, Prince of Nairobi and he's got 4 million, but it's going to cost him 10,000. Could you just finance him? And you're thinking, well, if you got 4 million, I think you probably... F- for the 10,000 bucks that you're asking me for. But, oh, geez, I could maybe get a portion of that thing. So as you hear these scams, and the CRA scam was one, the romance scam is another one, but I'm sure that they're very creative, as I say. I'm not even sure what the new scams are. But at least when you know as, as a member of the public and you go, no, I've heard of that one, and it's, it is too good to be true. And boy, yeah. There's a, an increase, I'm understanding, too, in, uh, in cou- counterfeiting. Again, I guess it's because of digital technology, digital printers, things of that nature, 3D printers. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more of that now, too. Yeah, and some of that is understanding the security devices on the actual currency, and they're pretty decent. And if you take the time, I know that the Bank of Canada, um, through the banks, will issue kind of a little package about what are the features, what to look for, how to 
check very quickly and they try to make them very quick whether you're holding it up to the light or texture or raised features or holographics all those things so again you know taking the time and again if it looks like poor quality um currency probably is uh we got about a minute left uh let's finish off with a party uh the, the chiefs <laughs> the chiefs gala is coming up it is on april 25th and um it is in support of both crime stoppers and the special olympics uh, so, no, I'm not profiting by it, uh, but I do, uh, the charity of choice for the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police is Special Olympics. We will have a Special Olympian talking about the impact and what opportunities provides uh, for those athletes. And when you hear them, uh, it is extremely compelling. Crime Stoppers, they need to, they are not part of the police, they're independent, uh, but uh, they need to have funds to offer the rewards and all those things. I think they're both very worthy causes. And uh, we are focusing on the entertainment. It won't be a lot of speeches. You'll hear less of me talking than you certainly do in this hour. And uh, that's the whole premise. Just come out, enjoy the night, and in support of very good causes. Where's it going to be? It's at uh, Winona Vine Estates. And you can go online through our website uh, to get those. I'm just going to turn to Frank for a minute. Any other sources, Frank? Thank you, CrimestoppersHamilton.ca, uh, because actually Trish Holbin is organizing that. So there's a couple avenues in. All right, and uh, check that out. It's always a lot of fun. We've attended in the past and had a great time. Uh, we're out of time, speaking of which. Uh, thanks so much, Chief. Uh, great to see you again. Thank we'll you. do this you again too. in a few weeks. Thanks. This is uh, Chief's Town Hall with Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.